Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show. With me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing common and maybe not so common questions about the Catholic faith and uh, giving some answers for them. If you have a question on this topic, uh, feel free to call in at 515 602 9655. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's Catholic with a K and the, the number four, persons.com. I'm also available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. So let's get started. John, are you there? I'm here. Good morning. I don't think I'm going to be able to stay for the entire program, but I'll stay for as long as I can. Good morning to you too. Happy happy, uh, Feast of the Nativity of Our Lady. Amen. Thank God for sending us Mary, who God used to send us Jesus for our salvation. Yep. And it just so happens that it's also my mother's birthday, so that's a kind of a neat thing. Yeah, a double bonus. Yep. <laughs> okay, so uh, this is a question that came to me from, I think, a guy named Russell. And he asks, name one of of the churches the apostles established that is named Catholic. And so the answer I gave him was the church in Antioch had Peter as its first bishop. The Antiochian church still claims to have a successor of Peter to this day. In 107 AD, Ignatius was the third bishop of the church in Antioch after Peter. Ignatius writes that wherever the bishop is, there is the Catholic Church. Polycarp's cover letter that he sent to the Philippians, along with copies of Ignatius's letters, in this letter that Polycarp wrote, uh, and well, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, and he learned the faith from the Apostle John. And In the cover letter that he writes, along with the copies of Ignatius' letters, he doesn't correct any alleged errors in Ignatius' writings as he forwarded them to the Philippians. This confirms that the understanding of Christianity that Ignatius has is the same as Polycarp and the same as the Apostle John. 
I also suggest that you read Justin Martyr's first apology. Justin's writings is from 150 AD. This is 150 years before Constantine allegedly corrupted the Catholic Church and 200 years before the Catholic Church established the canon of Scripture. See how the theology they write about compares to the theology taught in your current Protestant church. Also, in Acts chapter 9, it has the Greek phrase that is Ecclesia Catholicos. That translates into church throughout all or universal. It is not hard to see that Catholic Church comes from Ecclesia Catholicos. There, if you move the order of the words for proper English syntax, the theology of the early church was Catholic. Anything you want to add on that? Yeah, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head, Ken. Um, You know, the church came up with the term Catholic church, again, drawing from the language of Acts chapter 9. We see Ignatius of Antioch using this language, uh, Ecclesia Catholos. And yet, we can put too much emphasis on a name and not enough on what's behind the name. I'll give you a good example of that. Today, we have a um, a large Protestant denomination called the Baptist denomination. Well, the teachings of the Baptist church do not remotely resemble those of John the Baptist. (laughs) Okay. So you can, you can take a name. I, I could create the church of Ken Litchfield today and teach a whole bunch of stuff that you don't believe in. And it, just because I call it by your name doesn't mean that I'm accurately representing what you said. What I would say to this person is, okay, you're, you're looking too hard for the word. Look for the theology to the early church fathers. Go back to Justin Martyr, to Polycarp, to Ignatius of Antioch. Go back to these early church leaders and read what they wrote, what they taught, what they followed, and you'll find that it is expressly Catholic. You will not find sola fide in their writings. You will not find sola scriptura in their writings. You won't find anything in there about a rapture or dispensationalism or any of these other, um, you know, man-made inventions. You won't find them. So when you ask the question, if you ask the question, show me a church that taught what the Catholic Church teaches, that's very easy to do. Yep. You look at all the early churches, and they all taught Catholic kind of things. And, and um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these Protestant leaders, this is why they focus so much on sola scriptura, the Bible alone. They focus so much on sola scriptura because they don't. It's only, you know, they. A lot of Protestants accuse us of being a cult, but this is almost a cult-like behavior when they say we don't want you reading what these early church fathers taught. Just just read the Bible. Make up your mind for yourself. What is the harm of me reading what Ignatius of Antioch wrote and then deciding for myself whether it's plausible or not, deciding for myself whether I recognize that church? It's, it's very interesting because the Catholic Church doesn't tell you don't read the Bible, but these Protestant churches tell you don't read the early church fathers. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. And you know, of course, the Bible is such a limited amount of information from early Christianity that uh, the fact that there's various Protestant churches <laughs> uh, shows that it can be interpreted in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Luther they used the Bible for something it was never intended to be. The Bible was never intended to be the be-all for Christian knowledge. It was, it was intended to be a canon of the books that we use in the liturgy. But the Bible itself, John chapter 21, says that all of the things that Jesus taught couldn't fill up all the books that have ever been created since the beginning of time. Yep. And uh, yet Protestants cling to this idea of sola scriptura invented by Martin Luther uh, that you know we should only go by the Bible alone because it's the only reliable information we have. Uh, and yet Martin Luther thought that the Bible was so clear that, you know, 
everybody would interpret it the way he did. And he was quite surprised by the end of his life that, you know, there's many different interpretations of the Bible. Right. This is this idea of perpiscuity. Try to say that word three times real fast. (laughs) This idea of of perpiscuity is is this idea. And and this is where people – they play little word games. They play little equivocation word games. And one of the things they do is they talk about sufficiency. Well, everything that I need to know about the Bible is uh, – everything I need to know about salvation is in the Bible. Well, on some level, I agree that that's true because the Bible tells you go to the church. So on that level, I agree that the material that you need, uh, the the ability to extract that material infallibly and apply it to your own life and your own salvation, that's a whole different thing. So we're talking about material sufficiency versus practical sufficiency, and uh, no one can can back up this idea of practical sufficiency of Scripture because if they do, they gotta they have to show us how we arrived at 27 books in the New Testament without a church, and they can't do that. The Bible alone refutes itself because without the church, you can't have a Bible. Exactly. And uh, I don't know, they try to come up with different ways to show how the Bible tells you the canon of Scripture. <laughs> but, you know, they still start with, you know, certain premises of the Bible. Uh, see, I think it's something like Jude I, says, uh, you know, Peter's writings are scripture and uh okay. and peter writes that you know paul's writings are scripture well, but they still enough. don't tell you which that's writings enough, but... are scripture and it doesn't tell and, you and, how and, jude is scripture right and that's fair enough but the other thing is that jeremiah tells us jeremiah quotes from barak so why mm-hmm. do they not include barak in their canon of scripture if they're going in other words we're going to use their me- measuring stick and we talk about all the books that are mentioned in scripture why did they take Barak out of their canon of scripture when it's quoted in Jeremiah? Yep. And there's a whole lot of other, you know, quotes and references to the yeah, Deuterocanonical books in the New Testament. They have yep. to skip over or or neglect. Yep. So let's move on to the next one here. Uh, this is from a guy named Joe. And he writes, I had my first RCIA class last night. I'm currently a Protestant, but I am on a journey into the Catholic Church after God opened my eyes after reading John chapter 6. I have one major problem. I love the Protestant church that literally saved my life in 2018. I was homeless and suicidal and an agnostic at the time. The church was doing an outreach at the park I was at. I met them, they heard my story, believed me. The main pastor called his wife and then went to sleep in our guest room, and they showed me the love of Jesus like no one else had before. They have also adopted me as a family member. In May, he used my story as an example of Galatians 6-9 in a weekend sermon. So now, basically, the whole church thinks they know me. Ha ha ha. I'm now doing better. I have an apartment, car, and several friends who have become family. My problem I am having is that I feel like leaving now when things are better would make it feel like I am ungrateful, but that's not what I'm is going on. What should I do? Mm-hmm. And so um, this is a great example of how Salvation is a process. It does begin at one time, you know, typically at baptism. But, you know, just coming to believe in Jesus is the beginning of the salvation process. And many Protestants teach that that's the beginning and end of your salvation. Um, But there are some Protestants that also teach that you can lose your salvation because that's what the Bible teaches. So in the story of the Good Samaritan, person outside the people of God does what God calls us to do. Protestants are capable of doing good works like anyone else. Protestants are separated brethren who have some of the truth of the Catholic faith. 
you can explain to them that you have found something even better than their faith tradition. The Catholic Church is the one that assembled and preserved the Bible that they revere. So don't give up Jesus' church to stick with a church that is a small slice of the church that Jesus left behind to carry on his mission. Anything else you want to add? Yeah, well, you went right to where I was going to go to. The Good Samaritan is right where I was going to go on this. And I just want to say to Joe, you know, God bless you. I'm glad you're doing better. I'm glad your your life has turned around. But don't make the mistake of thinking that that Protestant church saved you. Any more than if it had been a Catholic church, that the Catholic church saved you. God saved you. God saved you. And the church and the people that he put in your path were instruments. Now, God bless those people for allowing themselves to be instruments of God's grace. God was able to, to move. All right? So God moved through those people to save you. You can now return the favor. The greatest way for you to show your gratitude to those people is to do the same thing, to be intercessors for them, to pray that they be taken to the full uh, fullness of truth, just like on the path that you're on. And God will use those graces from your prayers to return the favor to them that they extended to you. Yep. It's like, uh, you know, if if you're hungry and somebody gives you um, a sandwich and then invites mm-hmm. you to their restaurant and, you know, you learn to that they have really good food there at that restaurant, and then somebody shows you the buffet table that's available at the Catholic Church. And um, you say, well, I want the whole buffet table. I want the fullness of the faith available in the Catholic Church. Right. And inviting the people right. that just have the restaurant that specializes in I don't know, tacos or something. <laughs> It was like, right, well, right. at the buffet table, they have tacos, and they have hamburgers, and they have steak, and they have roast beef, and they have mutton, and they, you get the whole menu in the Catholic Church, not just one right. item off the menu. But I don't want to diminish the genuine Christian love that these that this Protestant church showed to him. They, they, they are truly, with their hearts, hearts, minds, souls, and strength, I think I've heard that somewhere before, seeking uh-huh. God. <laughs> They are truly seeking God, and if they truly seek God with all their strength, God will, as Paul says, complete the work that he has begun in them. Mm-hmm. So um, they got some of the truth, and we got all of the truth, and you know, right. we all have to start somewhere, and well-intentioned people – will start you in the right direction. And we Catholics need to be prepared to also reach out to those same people and also bring and, people to and the, the other thing of the is, faith. The other thing is that it, it's, it's really an indictment of the people that are on the other side of this equation. Okay, the people, because those were the people that Jesus railed against the hardest in the Gospels is the people who possess the truth but they didn't have the love of God in their hearts, the hypocrites. Mm-hmm. And, and those are the worst of all because their condemnation will be more severe. You knew the truth. You knew the requirement, God's requirement of justice and mercy and compassion, and yet you turned a blind eye. You were, you were like the two that walked past the wounded man on the street, and this Samaritan – who didn't even have the knowledge that you have had to be the person to rescue this man who had been attacked by robbers because you didn't do what you were supposed to do, and their condemnation will be worse. And there, uh, let's be clear, Ken. There are a lot of Catholics that are going to hell. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but there are. There are a lot of Catholics that do not live up to the calling. Oh, they they might even be going to church, but if they're uh not living the faith between Sundays, you know, that doesn't mean right. that they're, they're going to heaven. They're praising God with their words and mocking him with their actions. That's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that is the, that is the worst. Uh, that, that's the sin that 
Jesus railed against more than any other in the Gospels when you read that. Yeah. We've got to live the faith, not just be whitewashed tombs <laughs> right. full of dead men or dead bones or something like that. Right. And as John the Baptist said, do not presume to say we are children of Abraham, for God can raise up from these stones children to Abraham. Yeah. So let's move on to the next one here. This comes from a guy named Scott, and he says, can you show us how your cult is God's church using the definition of God's church in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 through 5? Um, you know, Protestants will often throw out uh, a few verses of the Bible and, and say, see, this thing is not in your church, or something like that. So let's read what 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5 says. Mm -hmm. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? So this, of course, is an attack on the Catholic Church, because in the Roman Rite, we don't have married priests generally. There are some Roman Rite Catholic priests that are married, but almost all of them are not. Mm -hmm. So it may surprise you, I, I say to Scott, that the Catholic Church does allow married priests. It is not the standard practice in the Roman or Latin Rite, but the 22 Eastern Rites of the Catholic Church do allow married clergy. Catholic clergy know about running a household through the household they were brought up in. They also run the household of an entire parish. At the time that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, um, oh, yeah. At the time that the single and not married Apostle Paul wrote 1 Timothy, there were not a lot of single men waiting to become deacons, priests, or bishops. And that's an important point. The Apostle Paul was single. So if you have to be married to be a minister in the church, Paul wouldn't qualify. Paul wouldn't qualify to be a minister in any Protestant church <laughs> these days. And not only would Paul not qualify. Yeah, not only would Paul not qualify, but according to their interpretations of those verses, Paul is writing to Timothy disqualifying himself. Mm -hmm. Right. And Timothy is also unmarried, so he's not qualified either. Right. So Paul right. gave Timothy the practical advice so that he could work with the men he had. Um, Jesus and Paul tell us that celibacy is the better way. Most Catholic clergy are free to put their church family first. They don't have to choose between a church event and their child's event. A local Catholic church does not have to provide as much money for a single priest as it does for a minister and his family. Also, a Catholic priest has the freedom to teach the truth of the Catholic faith without worrying his congregation will fire him for teaching something they don't believe. Some Catholic clergy are married, but most are Anglican converts. In the Orthodox Church, priests can marry, but bishops are required to be celibate. God wants Christians to marry and multiply, but clergy are called to a higher state of life, as Jesus and Paul explain. Anything more you want to add? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Paul, as you said, Paul himself was celibate. And Paul talked about, talked about this very, very clearly. He said... Marriage was a was a good thing, and, and marriage is a blessed thing in the Catholic Church. It's, it's raised to the level of a, of a sacrament. But Paul himself said that some people will not be able to be married and be ministers of the church because the married man is worrying about the needs of his wife, how he may please her. 
while the man of God is worrying about the things of God and how he may please God. Now, these are Paul's words. These are not my words. All right? But if you don't want to listen to Paul, listen to Jesus, because Jesus himself was single. And Jesus himself said that some will be eunuchs by their choice for the kingdom, that some people will choose to be celibate for the kingdom. These are Jesus' words. All right? I want to mm-hmm. start with the preface of the question. All right, this is what we this is what we call a an ad hom question, a triggered question, a circular question. Tell us how your cult justifies itself according to this verse. So the the conclusion that we're a cult is in the premise of the question. It's not an honest mm-hmm. question. When somebody phrases a question like that. Okay, it like me saying to, to Ken, uh, Ken, tell me how stupid people like you know anything about cars. Right. If I were to say that to Ken, he's not really going to take my question very, very seriously. He's not going to give me his best answer because he knows I don't want to hear it. I'm not ready to hear it. Okay. Well, you you spelled it out. The church, in its wisdom, determined. That the prudent thing to do here is to not have uh, priests be married in in this in the Roman rite, okay? And as you said, there are exceptions to that. For instance, somebody a priest comes to Catholicism from the Anglican rite, and that priest is married. Usually, that that priest will be will will, will be allowed. Him and his wife will be allowed to come into the church. However. They must live as brother and sister from that from that point on. So there are exceptions, but this is not a doctrine. They they like to uh, point to the phrase that, that Paul said to Timothy about doctrines of devils. Marriage uh, priests marrying and 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 us giving up meat on Fridays during Lent. These are not doctrines. They're disciplines. They're practices. It's like, mm-hmm. like, like saying that Jesus talks about fasting, that there is a time for you to fast. Well, if anyone said that you had to fast twenty four seven three sixty five, that would be a new doctrine. Which, so, it, it, in terms of, is this the church that Jesus Christ established? Because we had married priests back in the first century, and we don't have married priests today. Sorry, it doesn't get him where he wants to go. I I want you to show me in the first century, all right? So we've answered your challenge. Now I want to come back to you. You show me where Sola Scriptura is taught in the first century. Show me where Sola Fide is taught in the first century. Show me where the idea of a rapture is even hinted in the first century. You can't find it. It's not there, all right? And the mm-hmm. other thing is, the other thing is, and when you look at the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, Jesus starts by addressing seven churches. Those were all Catholic churches. And, right. and, and the letters were to the bishop, uh, to the bishop of the church in Smyrna, to the bishop of the church in Philadelphia, depending on the translation, some says messenger, some says angel, but the letters were directed to the bishop in those churches. Well, why would there be seven churches under the universal authority of the of the church if it's everybody for themselves? So Jesus wouldn't be addressing the church in Smyrna, Smyrna the church in Thyatira, the church in Philadelphia, uh, if those churches were not under the one universal church that he established. Right. And I've heard some Protestants, you know, try to use the different, the seven churches in the book of Revelation as like, you know, well, here's an example of different Protestant denominations. <laughs> and, you know, uh, you know, he writes to these different churches about the problems that they're having at these different churches. Um, but, you know, they're all basically okay. supposed to be teaching the same thing. Yes, they have mm-hmm. different problems. Well, he says to one of the churches, he says to one of the churches, for example, uh, get your stuff together, or I will remove the lampstand. 
from its place. Okay, Tell right. me where the lampstand is in your Protestant church. Go into the book of Revelation, the first eight chapters of the book of Revelation. I see priests. I see robes. I see an altar. I see a sacrifice. I see vestments. I see incense. Show me where all of that is in your Protestant church where the band the band with their g- guitar and drums is performing with a with a, uh, a a laser and a fog machine show me right. that in the book of revelation uh, what i see in the book of revelation now let's let's remember that john is called up to heaven and he witnesses uh-huh. these things in heaven he sees a queen uh uh arrayed with the sun he sees an altar with a sacrifice. He sees the lamb who was slain, who was offered. He sees the Lord's Supper. Um, and so John is showing us what worship is supposed to look like. This is what God is showing John in the book of Revelation. Okay? This is what uh, – all right. So when you, you have a job and you work in a factory or wherever the job that you work at, and the first few days that you're on that job, you're walking around with the supervisor, and the sh- supervisor's taking you all to all the stations where the where, where the product is manufactured, where the job is done. You got a pen and a notebook, right? And you're taking down notes. Now he doesn't have to tell you specifically, do it like this, do it like this. He's showing you, this is what it looks like, and you understand from that that your expectation is that what you do is supposed to look like what they're doing. Uh-huh. And that's what John has shown in the book of Revelation. Now, I don't see, Scott, I don't see your worship in the book of Revelation. Okay? But here's what I do see in the book of Revelation in chapter 14. I see 144,000 men who are virgins who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That's what I see. 144,000 men who are virgins, who have not been defiled with women. This is what the this is what the text says, and they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now I need you to show me 144,000 virgin men in your denomination. If you can show me that, then you win the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another important uh, thing to keep in mind that in the early church, you know, the Jews and Romans, they targeted the bishops of the church because they knew that these guys are the leaders. And if a bishop is married and has a family, you know, he's more likely to give up the faith to preserve his family, whereas a single bishop would be willing to die for the faith because Mm -hmm. he knows that nobody else is dependent on him. Other than his church. Not only that, not only that, and this is a very, very important point, as a practical manner, and this has become truer and truer and truer as the church has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. If that priest or that pastor is married and has a wife and kids, okay, then mm-hmm. that wife and kids become the financial obligation of the church. And that was something that was not feasible, that was not practical in the early centuries of the church, because like you said, to be a priest in the early centuries of the church meant a death sentence, meant a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And today we're seeing that more and more. Unfortunately, the martyrdom of these Catholic priests in, in countries like Nigeria is something that's reared its ugly head again, and all of these families – who have these men of God leading their families, those families are going to be destitute. Those families are going to be destitute. And, um, you know, what a, what, a, what a quick way to destroy all those families and to bankrupt the church of God, derail it from its, from its mission uh, by having the church of God have to support all of these families that become orphaned by these, by these holy men giving their lives for God. So as a practical matter, it doesn't work. And also, as, as a man who was married, and, and unfortunately, um, I, I knew firsthand. I knew firsthand. I learned firsthand that, that she was an impediment to my walk with God. 
and uh, and unfortunately that you know, sometimes and, and most marriages that's not the case okay but it can happen you can have somebody who's invested in the world all right have somebody who's invested in the world and they are going to be an impediment to your mission with God to your wanting to serve God and boy that is especially true if you're a priest mm-hmm. if if you're a priest just imagine if you're a priest in in Michigan okay trying to serve the disadvantaged uh youth in in the in the Detroit area and some of these disadvantaged areas um you know where there's a, a lot of uh problems okay uh but your wife wants to live you know she wants to live in a $650,000 mansion you know <laughs> the outskirts of Ann Arbor or or, 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 or what have like that yeah yeah there's going to be tension there's going to be tension there's going to be strife okay and the thing about it is uh you know a priest gets called in the middle of the night for emergencies for emergency confessions for last rites for for all of these things what a tension that is on a marriage what attention that would be on 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 a marriage. So the church decided, in its prudence, that it it is not practical for the priest to be both married and a man of God. And I actually actually agree with the church. I think they made the right decision. Mm-hmm. Being able to devote yourself more fully to God, you know, is easier. And it doesn't when you don't have a wife it, and a family. To take care of also right, and it doesn't, and it and it doesn't say that you can't be a very very godly person, a man of God, serving God through your vocation as a married man, as the leader of your family, but doing that while being a pastor, they're both valid, they're both holy, they're both uh, justifiable vocations, uh, but doing both at the same time is not realistic. Right. <laughs> I I really have to juggle my life, you know, to be a, you know, a husband at home, a worker at work and do apologetics right. work also. <laughs> right. And then, oh, by the way, Ken, you're doing Sunday mass, too. And then you've got a funeral oh. <laughs> after that. OK. And then you've got to go visit Miss Smith. She's having problems with her boys. She wants to talk to talk, talk to you about that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, put all that on top of everything that you're dealing right now and you, you'd break, wouldn't you? Mhm. Yes, I'd be running all over the place. Yep. And and yet uh just a little side story here. Two Mondays ago, um after work I had like three potential things I could do. Um uh, my daughter had an employment meeting, uh and I could potentially have to pick her up after that. Um uh, at my church we have a men's group that meets on the first Monday of the month. Yeah. And uh, I could have gone to that, or maybe it's the last Monday of the month. Um, And then also my cousin's husband, his mother had died, and uh, she was having a visitation at the funeral home. And the funeral home was on my way home from work, and I was thinking about stopping by there. Um, My daughter was able to get a ride home from her employment meeting with somebody else, which was good. And a car at work with an electrical problem kept me from leaving in time for me to be able to make the men's meeting at my church. Uh-huh. Uh, so I went to the funeral home. And <laughs> this is the really great part of the story in that, um, well, the priest that was supposed to come and lead the rosary there was sick and not able to make it. And uh, so my cousin, knowing that I am a Catholic apologist, asked me to lead the rosary. So there I was at the funeral home for a lady I had never met with a bunch of people that are, you know, not real strong in the Catholic faith, but I was able to lead the rosary for them. Uh, And I explained that the rosary is a devotional prayer that, you know, uh, calls us to reflect on 20 events in the life of Jesus. And I explained, you know, about the five different glorious mysteries, you know, as we started each section of the rosary and why Catholics believe in these different mysteries and how 
Jesus, you know, death and resurrection um, is how we are saved and how Jesus has a prepared a place for us. But whether mm-hmm. we get there or not depends on how we live here on earth. So I was able to help, you know, them think about the Catholic faith and why they should be Catholic and why they should be practicing the Catholic faith yeah. while leading the rosary. Yeah, you know, the biggest illusion in our Catholic faith, the biggest illusion in the faith walk is that we're in control. That is the biggest illusion because we are not in control at all. And, um, you know, and I'm just guilty of this as anybody. We build up in our minds these grandiose missions, these grandiose schemes of all of the wonderful things that I'm going to do for God. I'm going to go here and I'm going to do this and I'm going to go here and I'm going to do that. And God's just up in heaven laughing at us. <laughs> right. he, he, he has he has it all he has it all mapped out and planned out and is okay you don't have any idea what you're doing next <laughs> uh, you know I have your agenda mapped out for you and and uh, we're just inside the roller coaster just riding that's <laughs> really yep uh, you did you our... did not get up that morning you did not get up that morning knowing what you were doing that that afternoon and yet God knew. God knew mm-hmm. and he preordained it. Yep. He had a plan to put me in the right spot at the right time. Yep. And uh our priest at our at in his homily last Sunday was talking about how, you know, um we develop you know, it's hard for especially for us um uh, autonomous Americans to think about submitting to the will of somebody else. <laughs> Oh, and yeah. especially when it comes to religion, it's like, well, when it comes to religion, you know, that's strictly voluntary, and I want the religion that I, where I can do what I want to do, not what somebody else. Right. Is like well, <laughs> you, you know, this is where you start. This is where you start to get into the realm of politics in this country, and you want to make enemies on both sides. Be a practicing Catholic, <laughs> and that. that that is the quickest way to make enemies on both sides because on this up. Uh, because you can on the same – this is a big joke when it comes – I'll just talk about one issue. This is a big joke when it comes to the Democrats on one side railing against the corrupt corporate people and the Republicans on the other side railing against the corrupt government people. They're the same people. <laughs> They're just moving chairs back and forth. The corrupt government people go into corporate life. The corrupt corporate people go into government life, and and they're just rearranging the chairs on the on the on the deck of the Titanic, um, and it, it 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 goes down to this, Ken. There's good people and there's bad people. All right, and if you're a bad person, it doesn't matter if you're a butcher, baker, or candlestick maker. You're going to be a bad butcher, baker, or candlestick maker. And uh, mm-hmm. we get we get so caught up in this idea that if I just align with this group or I just align with this group, I'll be okay. And that's where all these things like you know racism and and class warfare and all these things pile up. And yet you started off with a question about people who did not necessarily possess the fullness of truth. They were not necessarily card-carrying members of the Catholic Church, but they were good people. And God can use good people. God can put good people in situations and use them, and and it is meritorious as long as those people are acting according to the light that they have within them. But there's going to be a lot of people that know right from wrong but don't live it. Don't act it, and there's going to be a lot of people that follow those those people. And so this this whole idea that we're in control if we just join this group or we just follow this group or we just follow this activity, um, you know, there are a lot of people. I'll, I'll give you one story. My birthday is Sunday. Okay. Mm-hmm. One particular one particular year, I noticed that my wife my wife worked at a hospital. And I noticed that she was going to be off on my birthday because she worked every other weekend. They would give her a day off during during the week. So I happened to notice that she was off, and, and we had a great day together. We went to the beach. We went to you know uh, uh, the, the park, and, and, and that evening had a nice uh, birthday dinner with my kids, ate some birthday cake. 
and then struck up a conversation with my kids. My daughter had just started her freshman year in high school. I said, what did you guys learn in, in, in school today? And she said, well, Dad, do you believe there's ever a justification for war? Is there ever a time for a country to go to war? And I said, well, yeah, of course. You never want to go to war, but there's a time when a nation has to go to war. She said, well, the kids in my class say there's never any justification for going to war. I said, well, that's ridiculous. She said, what would be an example of a time when a country has to go to war? I said, well, if we're attacked. Conversation took place at about 9 o'clock at night on the evening of September 10th, 2001, my birthday. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The next morning, (laughs) the next morning was that day that, you know, forever changed all of our lives. And, uh, you know, so that's just an example of of, uh, there were were a lot of people, 3,000 people that went to bed on the night of September 10th not knowing it was going to be the last day on this earth. And uh, mm-hmm. so that's this, this – Jesus said, always be ready for you know not the day or the hour. And, and, you know, people think about that in terms of his return. Well, Jesus' return, you might not have to worry about Jesus' return at the next coming, at the second coming, because Jesus returned for you and <laughs> maybe coming tonight. And that's what you have to watch and be ready for. I always tell people, make sure you're in a state of grace all the time because you never know when your time is up. And, right. um, you know, don't plan on, you know, well, I'm going to sin now, but, you know, I'll get right with God before I die. <laughs> it's like, you don't know when your time is up. And, 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 and it goes beyond simply the servile fear of knowing the punishment that, that, that faces you if you don't get right. Um, it's uh, if you know you're going to meet somebody, okay? Like say say there's somebody famous that you really wanted to meet, okay? You're excited that you're getting to have the opportunity to meet this person, and oh boy, you're you're going to pick out a really good suit and 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 get dressed up and get cleaned up and and you know clean out the car and wash it and wax it and everything like that. You're preparing. You want everything to be just right. Well, if if I knew I was going to meet Jesus tomorrow, boy, that's that's what I'm trying to do. Well, I don't know that I'm not going to meet Jesus tomorrow, Ken. I'm I, I might meet Jesus in 30 years or 20 years or 10 years or five minutes. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And we always have to be ready for that. We always I always want to be, um, you know, you don't want him. You don't want to hear that. You know, why did you why did you show up at the wedding banquet? without a wedding garment. You don't want to hear that. Um, I, I want to be, I want to have my wedding garment ready when I show up. Right. Okay. So we got, uh, some short ones here that can kind of fill in for the rest of the hour here. Uh, I have a, a Facebook friend, uh, named Namazwa who's in Africa. Um, uh, my, mm-hmm. my, Apologetic ministry is around the world, <laughs> and uh, God has revealed, uh, has allowed me to learn so much, and I have an obligation to share that with others. Again, it's living the faith, uh, not just, you know, knowing something and going to church on Sunday. You know, Amen. we're obligated to share the truth of the Catholic faith to those that ask about it. At least, you know, we don't have to go around and beat everybody over the head with the catechism. But if somebody right. questions you about your faith, you should be able to answer those questions. So anyway, my friend Namazwa in from Africa, he asks, from the fact that the Eastern Catholic priests and Orthodox priests marry, do Eastern Catholic nuns and sisters marry? Uh, so I answered him with, uh, Eastern Rite Catholic nuns and sisters do not marry. They live a life of prayer, service, and celibacy. And so he said, so do Orthodox Orthodox nuns and sisters marry, or is it reserved for the priests alone? And so I answered, there are both monks and nuns in Orthodoxy, and monasticism have traditionally played a very important role in the life of the Orthodox Church. A monastic man 
and women in orthodoxy are usually restricted to monasteries and do not normally participate in the active ministry of the church. This is because the monastic vocation is a contemplative and prayer is considered to be a unique calling, quite different than that of being a pastor, teacher, nurse, or social worker. Normally, the monastic vocation is a lay vocation, with each monastery having just one or two priests to care for the sacramental life of the community. Orthodox nuns and monks don't marry. They devote their life serving God. The bishops of the Orthodox churches are generally drawn from the monasteries. Anything you'd like to add on that? No, I think you covered that pretty well. Uh-huh. So he uh, follows up with the Catholic Church distinguishes uh, nuns from sisters. Does the Orthodox Church have both as well? And so I answered, generally, nuns are called sisters, and the vocations are referred interchangeably. There is a difference, though. A nun lives a life of service in a convent, where a sister lives and serves more in the public. It used to be that sisters served as school teachers in Catholic schools, as well as nurses in Catholic hospitals. And both nuns and sisters take a vow of chastity and poverty in service to God. In the Russian and and Greek Orthodoxy, nuns only live in convents where they pray and work for their own existence. These Orthodox nuns generally do not serve outside in the public like Catholic sisters. Anything you want to add on that? Yeah, I just I would just say that the that the title nun usually uh identifies the the uh, the sister with the particular convent with particular place whereas title sister usually affiliates her with a specific order like the sisters of charity or the sisters of St Paul or the or 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 one of those. Mhm. And uh you know we we used to be blessed with a lot of nuns that helped serve in our Catholic churches and schools. Um, the church that I attend in the town of Richmond, which is south of the town of Memphis where I live in Michigan, uh, there was a kind of a house that was across the street from the church where they had a, let's see, I think there's like six bedrooms in there or maybe eight anyway. Um, and the nuns, you know, would live in that house and then they'd walk across the street and teach at the school. Um, but you know, we don't have any nuns there anymore and the church has actually sold the building and it's now, um, uh, like a group home, I guess you might say, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're, uh, Groups of people, a group of people that need extra help, you know, live there with supervision. Gotcha. And our, we still have our Catholic school there, um, but the most of the teachers there are like semi-retired teachers. You know, they retired from a public school, perhaps, um, but they have uh, a few more good years left in them. <laughs> so our principal. Right. Uh, you know, looks for those kind of teachers to teach there. And uh, it's an amazing thing that, you know, we've had that church, well, we've had that school there for a long time, and uh, there's still people helping to, or there's still students going there, and many people are willing to pay that extra money to send their kids to Catholic school, not just for a Catholic education, but be, but for the extra attention they get there and the sound teaching right. they get there. And, this, and the sad thing is that many people are willing to, to spend that extra money, but don't have it. And it's, it's just a, it's, it's just sad that a lot of people that are disadvantaged don't have the opportunity to give their kids 
uh, a, a quality education because of the, uh, the unfortunate lottery of you know where they happen to live. It's uh, it's it's very unfortunate. One of our previous pastors, you know, explained to you know our congregation, and you know he even promoted it throughout the whole area that you know if you want to send your kids to our school send your kids here we will work out the financing and one of the things my knights of columbus council does is we donate money to the school for them to use with for tuition assistance and we leave it up to the principal and the pastor you know who needs it the most or how they're going to divvy it out um right so we're not just paying for one family to go there, you know, we'll make a donation and you put it where it needs to be. And uh, something else, the uh, the church or well, the school needs a new roof and it's going to cost a couple hundred thousand dollars for a new roof. Um, and the the pastor <laughs> you know, shared this like, well, our school needs a new roof. It's going to cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> so then uh donate for the roof and uh right. we've already raised half of the money for that so uh we're going to get started on Wonderful. it soon but um they did remodeling on the classrooms and uh but with a leaky roof you know it's ruining the ceiling tiles so yep um and certainly a leaky roof is not good for any building no it's not Okay, uh, let's see. So we got the one other short one here. And okay. this is from my friend Kashif over in Pakistan. And he asks, okay. when does personal conviction go too far? And so I answered, personal conviction is a subjective feeling that can be misleading. This is why Jesus left his authority with his church and promised to be with it until the end of the age, in Matthew chapter 28, before Jesus ascends into heaven. So we need to use our personal convictions within the boundaries of what the church teaches. That way we can properly direct our energy along God's path. And, you know, this kind of goes back to, you know, the idea that, you know, we have a plan on how we're going to live our faith and how we're going to do stuff for God. And God says, no, I got a plan. <laughs> And mm-hmm. he shows us that through his church. So we're getting close to the end of the show. So now's your chance to add some well, to that if you. Yeah, I would just give uh, the two primary examples where personal conviction go too far is the sin of presumption and the sin of despair. The sin of presumption is to assume that I'm right with God and that I'm going to heaven because I'm oh so holy and I'm so oh so wonderful, and that in uh, uh, fact I'm even so wonderful that uh, you know what I can do this sin right here on Friday and and go to confession on Saturday and I'm going to be okay. That's a sin of presumption. Sin of presumption. Uh, the Pharisee that was in the temple saying, "Oh Lord, I'm so wonderful. I'm not like this publican over here," you know. That's the sin of presumption. The mm-hmm. flip side of that is the sin of despair. And the sin of despair is just as deadly. An example of the sin of despair is that a person who is convicted of a mortal sin, and when I say convicted, I mean convicted by the Holy Spirit, get up, go to confession, dust yourself off, and try again. Uh, I, I don't know how many times I've heard, well, you know what, I, I'm, I'm just not strong enough right now. I need to get strong before I can go back to confession and go back to Mass. No, 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 no. You don't get strong so you can go to confession. You go to confession so you can get strong. <laughs> you've got, the, you've got the, the, the situation turned completely around, and, and what happens is as you allow that, that guilt – inside of you to fester and build and build and build it 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 it's like rot it eats at you like rust and that's an example where your personal conviction where you're convicting yourself uh you know more than jesus is and and i think the primary example of that was is judas judas went out and hung himself when what he needed to do was repent and ask jesus for forgiveness 
but he went out and hung himself instead. So those are two examples where personal conviction goes too far. Yep. So that's all we have for today. Tune in next Friday for more great uh, answers, questions and answers. Uh, thanks for tuning in today, though. And if you'd like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. If you'd like to have me come speak at your parish on this or any other topics, you can email me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. Thanks for being on today, John. Really glad to have you. God bless. And uh, I'm glad to be in the same boat working with you to get us other people and us to heaven. Amen. Amen. God bless you and have a great weekend. God bless you too. Bye-bye.